afternoon, everyone. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to the Imperial War Museum on behalf of the Wilfred Owen Association, in particular our Chair Meg Crane and Vice Chair David Worthington, both of whom are ill and sadly can't be here today. Um, I'm Jane Potter, I edit the journal, and I'm really pleased to be welcoming you for our autumn event, From Doomed Youth to the Battle of the Somme, November 1918. We have two very distinguished speakers who, in the usual words, probably need no introduction, but I'm going to introduce them anyway. Um, first of all, Max Egremont will be speaking, followed by Jean Moorcroft Wilson. Max Egremont will be speaking on the last phase, study modern history at Oxford University, and his books have included biographies, history, travel, and novels. He has written extensively on the First World War in his lives of Major General Edward Sir Edward Spears and of Siegfried Sassoon. His latest book, published last year and recently out in paperback, is The Forgotten Land, Journeys Among the Ghosts of East Prussia, a mixture of travel and history. In addition to the earlier history of East Prussia, it covers the Eastern Front in the two world wars. Jean Moorcroft Wilson, who we all know from her biographies of Sassoon, um, Rosenberg, and my favorite, Charles Hamilton Sorley, um, among others, um, won an exhibition at London University where she also gained her BA, MA, and PhD. She started a career as visiting lecturer in English at the University of Munich. Um, since then, she has been a lecturer in English at the University of London and teaches regularly for the Dominican University of Chicago's London program and the University of Cape Town. She also works with her husband, Cecil Wolf in their long-established independent publishing house and is general editor of their Bloomsbury Heritage War Poets and Poets of the 1890s series. So without further ado, she will be speaking on From Owen's Doomed Youth to his doomed youth. So without further ado, I will introduce Max Egremont, please. Thank you very much. At this time of year, of course, we remember the dead of both world wars. This afternoon, perhaps, we think of a particular death, that of the poet Wilfred Owen, killed on the Somme Oise Canal on the 4th of November, 1918. So much has been written about this, of the tragic loss to poetry. His friend and his mentor, Secret Sassoon, believed in old age that literary modernism, the work of Eliot and Pound and Joyce, could perhaps have been checked if, as Secret called him, little Wilfred had lived. Together, the two of them could have held the line against what Secret described as the rule of towering top or T.S. Eliot. <laughs> Death perhaps makes you Death perhaps lets you make what you want out of the unlived lives of the dead. Would Owen really have followed Sassoon into nostalgia, into seclusion, into disapproval of progress? We can't know. Owen's last action when the troops crossed the canal in large numbers came towards the end of the decisive Allied offensive on the Western Front. There was great heroism encouraged perhaps by the sense of impending victory. 
Three Victoria crosses were won on the canal. <coughs> Owen himself had long dispelled any sense that he might not be brave. The imputation of cowardice that had possibly preceded his treatment for shell shock at Craig Lockhart <coughs> vanished when he was recommended for a military cross in October after action at Joncourt. Here, he told his mother, I lost all my earthly faculties and fought like an angel. Wilfred Owen was last seen trying to cross the, the canal on a raft under heavy enemy fire. The engagement was the last active fighting that his unit, the 2nd Battalion of the Manchester Regiment, took part in during the war. The German High Command, even such obdurate warriors as Ludendorff and Hindenburg, in spite of later myths to the contrary, knew that the game was up. They saw the impossibility of containing the British and French in the north, and the French and American offensive further south over the Meuse. German morale had collapsed. The huge reserves of manpower brought in by the United States must have seemed to the Germans to stretch endlessly across the Atlantic. But it had been a heartbreaking journey. To show the depressingly static nature of the Western Front, the Second Manchester's found themselves on Armistice Day, November the 11th, in billets south of Londresy, where they'd been on August the 18th, 1914, on their way to Mons. The confirmation of Owen's military cross came through some four days after he was killed. One of those, the most powerful myths of the armistice is that of the bells of Shrewsbury ringing out in celebration as the telegram boy knocked on the door of the Owen home to bring the news of Wilfred's death. It's a strange irony that the last letter to his mother from a poet whose work has been so often used to show the futility and the pain of war should have said, it's a great life. Of this I'm certain, you couldn't be visited by a band of friends so fine as surround me here. Like Sassoon, like London, Wilfred Owen came to abominate war. Yet he felt uplifted by the human qualities it brought out in those who fought. These, he felt, exemplified war's betrayal of humanity by using its noblest side in such base circumstances. Was it right to make men die or show incredible courage for what he called the old lie, dulciet decorum est pro patria mori? Let's go back to the start of 1980, that momentous year. The prospect of the Allies looked bad. The autumn and early winter of 1917 had brought the terrible casualties of the Flanders Offensive. Through the mud round Passchendaele, which the poet Edmund Blunden thought so much worse than the song. The Germans were imposing crushing terms on the new Bolshevik government in Russia, showing what the Allies could expect if they lost. In February 1918, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk brought large parts of Western Russia and Poland into the Reich. A huge, 
program of construction and absorption, the prelude to colonization began. Well, this is brilliantly described in Arnold Zweig's novel, The Case of Sergeant Grisha. Zweig himself served on the Eastern Front. German units began to return from the East. It was suspected by the Allies that there'd be a huge enemy offensive early in 1918 in the West. The German push east, the huge gains signed at Brest-Litovsk, takes one back, I think, to 1914, to the descent of Europe into war. On reaching 1914, perhaps one can go back even further to the emergence of what's been seen as the conundrum of late 19th and 20th century Europe what's been called the German problem, which arose from the unification of Germany in 1871, an event that Israeli saw as more significant for Europe than the French Revolution. Bismarck, Prussian Chancellor of the new Germany, made an alliance with Russia, thus securing his empire's eastern frontier. It was the breaking of this alliance, or the failure of the Iron Chancellor's successors to continue it, partly because of Russia's aspirations in the Straits of Constantinople or in the Balkans, that changed Europe. France moved fast, starting negotiations to replace Germany as Russia's ally. In 1892, the Alexander III Bridge in Paris, named after the Russian Tsar, is a symbol of this change. So the foundations of the power blocks that went to war in 1914 took shape. Germany and Austria, or what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, France and Russia. France wanted the return of Alsace-Lorraine, taken at the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. Russia wanted an outlet on the Mediterranean through the Straits. Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, wished to keep its position in the Balkans. Germany chafed at the confinement of, the confinement of its power by its rivals to the east and the west. Britain stood on the edge, an imperial power looking for protection to its navy. Some people, General Sandra Wilson, some conservatives, urged a more wholehearted alliance with France. Gray, the foreign secretary of the Asquith government, kept the friendly conversation with the French secret and unofficial. When the crisis came in 1914, there were members of the cabinet who were surprised at how far the relationship had gone. I think it's fair to say that the British army wasn't feared on the continent. It was the navy, the Royal Navy, that counted. Bismarck, on being asked what he'd do if the British Army landed in Europe, and answered, we shall send a policeman to arrest it. <laughs> the fiasco of the South African War, and it was a fiasco, didn't add to the army's reputation. It was to the east that the German high command looked with greatest apprehension to Russia's burgeoning strength. <coughs> For all the militaristic aspects of German society, Germany felt itself to be a weakening 
military power in 1914 in comparison with the huge sterling giant on its eastern frontiers. To go back to Wilfred Owen, Wilfred Owen, of course, was a Francophile. During his time in France, where he was when war broke out, he had a personal and poetic awakening, teaching in a language school in Bordeaux and in a French family, meeting the French imagist poet Laurent Tyard. In 1909, Tyard published a pacifist pamphlet in which he denounced armaments and militarism. Some have seen a link between this and the spirit of Owen's war poems. Tyard was a decadent, admired by the Paris salons. Before the war, Owen's poetry was very much in the wildly 90s style, homoerotic dreams, opium poppies, that sort of thing. <laughs> in August 1914, he wrote to his mother from France, I feel my own life all the more precious and more dear in the presence of this deflowering of Europe. While it's true that the guns will effect a little useful weeding, I'm furious with chagrin to think that the minds which were to have excelled the civilization of 10,000 years are being annihilated, and the bodies product of aeons of natural selection, melted down to pay for political statues. I regret the mortality of the English regulars more than that of the French, Belgian, or even the Russian and German armies, because the former are Tommy Atkins, poor fellows, when the continental armies are inclusive of the finest brains and temperaments of the land, because there was no conscription in Britain. In 1914, when Britain saw a war that might endanger their country, France and the western part of the continent was where they looked. France was like a massive ditch across which any invader or potential conqueror must get over before he got to British shores. The 28-year-old secret to soon, bicycling across the wheel as war broke out across the channel. Some adopt notions of war gained from pictures in the Illustrated London News of Russia fighting Japan and Turks fighting Bulgarians. It all seemed too remote, but now the cowls of the hop kilns seemed like signposts pointing to the ominous continent of Europe, or its western part. One can think perhaps of European eyes looking east, from Britain to France, from France to Germany, particularly over the chance of winning back Alsace-Lorraine, from Germany to Russia. Three invasions happened in the first weeks of the war. The French went disastrously <coughs> into Alsace, still wearing the red trousers of the Franco-Prussian War of some 40 years before. The Germans entered Belgium and then northern France, and the Russians came into East Prussia. It's in this East Prussian campaign that I think we can see the key role of the Eastern Front, how it was to shape the outcome in both world wars in a line that I think one can see stretching from 1914 to 1945. In August 1914, the Russian halt the two armies under General Samsonov and under General Renenkamp was a Baltic German extraction, like so many Russian generals in the First World War. 
were thought so threatening to the eastern part of the Reich that the German commander advocated withdrawal from the whole province of East Prussia. This would have meant the loss of Königsberg, coronation city of the Prussian kings, and of huge symbolic importance as a center of the German so-called civilizing mission in the east. This had begun in the 13th century with the northern crusade of the Teutonic Knights. Germans and Slavs had lived together since then in these eastern lands. The last Kaiser even talked of our Poles. Earlier Prussian rulers had learned Polish. But what could Owen and Sassoon have known about this? It didn't come into their thinking. Why should it? Owen had been to France before the war, his one foreign journey. Sassoon, although from a much more prosperous background, had never been abroad at all. The First World War was a world war without the possibility of world communication. What was happening elsewhere on other fronts came only as a whisper. In 1916, having joined up, Owen was prepared to go, was preparing to go to the front. The pre-war British Army was rigid with class distinction. The crisis of the war, the quick depletion of manpower, went some way towards softening these as all types found themselves in much closer proximity. Wilfred told his mother, there are two things, and no more, which cause distinctions to disappear between men. They are animal sports and mortal danger. And neither religion, nor love, nor charity, nor community of interest, nor socialism, nor conviviality can do it at all. A year later, on January the 1st, 1917, he wrote to his mother about the excitement of being near the front. There's a fine heroic feeling about being in France. And I'm in perfect spirits. A tinge of excitement is about me, but excitement is always necessary to my happiness. Then, ten days later, I have no anxiety. I cannot do a better thing or be in a writer place. In April that year, he was blown up by a shell, suffered shock, and invalided home. In June 1917, he told his mother of his aim in war, extinction of militarism, beginning with Prussian. In July, from Craig Lockhart Sanatorium in Edinburgh, where he met Sassoon, where he was being treated for shell shock, he writes, I've endured unnameable tortures in France. And in August, comparing himself to an earlier poet whose biography he was reading, Tennyson, it seems, was always a great child. So should I have been, but for Beaumont Hamill. By December 1917, Owen was at Scarborough, released from Craig Lockhart, remembering what he'd once seen in the base camp at Etat. But chiefly, I thought of the very strange look on all faces in that camp, an incomprehensible look, which a man will never see <laughs> in England. No war should be in England, nor can it be seen in any battle, but only in a tart. It wasn't despair or terror. It was more terrible than terror. For it was a blindfold look, and without expression, like a dead rabbit's. It will never be painted, and no actor never sees it. And to describe it, I think, 
I must go back and be with them. The return to France came in error. In February 1918, he wrote to his mother, just before embarkation, quoting from Tagore, when I go from hence, let this be my parting word, that what I've seen is insurpassable. On October the 4th or 5th, he reported, I've been recommended for the military cross, and have recommended every single NCO who was with me. Then some six days later, he could give her praise of himself from the men, read while he was censoring letters about that little officer called Owen, who was at Scarborough. He was commanding my company. He's a toff, I can tell you. <laughs> Let's go back again to 1914. Amid the hubris of German successes in the West, the conquest of Belgium, the flight of the French government to Bordeaux, the advance on Paris, there was panic in the East. The German commander there <coughs> was sacked. Hindenburg, from an East Prussian family, was brought out of retirement as a steadying hand and sent East with a mercurial but supposedly brilliant Ludendorff, here with the capture of the age, as his second in command. With them came reinforcements from the West, from the French front, weakening the forces that, under the Schlieffen plan, were meant to take Paris, conquer France, and bring a quick end to war on two fronts. The huge German triumph of Tannenberg followed, perhaps with the Battle of Caporetto, the most complete triumph of the war, when the Russians were completely routed. A complete victory. The significance of this, its symbolic value, spread quickly. Ancestors of Hindenburg had fought on or near the same battlefield in 1410 for the Teutonic Knights when the Knights had been defeated by the Polish-Lithuanian forces. Huge, apparently imperturbable, conscious of image, and the suggestive power of silence, Hindenburg became a national hero, eventually effectively supplanting the Kaiser and making wartime Germany into a virtual military dictatorship. When the statues of him went up and people paid for nails to hammer into them, thus making a contribution to the cost of the war. Even the name of the 1914 victory was chosen with care. The Poles may have called their 15th century triumph Grunwald, but to the Germans or Prussians it had always been Tannenberg, named after the village nearby. The second battle, which the Germans quickly called Tannenberg, seemed, was seen to have wiped out the shame of the defeat of 500 years before. This transformation of anxiety into a huge victory led to German hubris and Russian despair. The great novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn believed that the revolution of 1917 and the birth of the Soviet Union was given a fatal impetus by Tannenberg. If so, one can see the line stretching. If so, the Bolshevik threat that so obsessed Hitler and led to his catastrophic invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 and Germany's second defeat came partly out of what happened on the Eastern Front in 1914. How long is this line? Let's go back to 1918, the year of Wilfred Owen's death. As we've seen 
In January, the short term outlook for the Allies was grim. 1917 had brought inconclusive or failed offensives in the West, the Bolshevik Revolution in October, and the departure of the Russians from the war, French mutinies during the summer. True, there was one vitally important point of immense long-term significance, the arrival of American troops. But were they in time to prevent catastrophe? They had no experience of warfare on the Western Front. Also, it was hard to see how effective they would be and under whose command. Allied plans didn't feel confident enough to include them in any decisive advance. These were the plans made before the Great German Offensive until 1919. There were many uncertainties. It was hard to feel confidence in Haig, the British commander, after the grim campaign of the autumn of 1917 seemed to show the impossibility of a successful offensive. The British had failed even though they had a four to one advantage. Usually in the war, the French and the British were on the offensive, but with equipment that was inferior to that of their enemy and without the benefit of surprise. The Prime Minister Lloyd George and the Chief of Staff Robertson doubted the possibility of a complete defeat of the Germans. The Germans knew the need for speed. They knew also that they couldn't afford to remain on the defensive, for this would bring about a gradual exhaustion of manpower and their economy. Again, we see the influence of the East on their intentions. The availability of troops from the Russian front allowed them one last huge gamble, the final throw in a series of initially startling but eventually fatally inconclusive ventures like Verdun, the U-boat campaign, and the Schlieffen Plan of 1914. But by 1918, even the powerful German economy, hampered by the Allied blockade, was crumbling after three years of a war on two fronts, so time was getting short. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk took the German Empire to its greatest extent until the time of Hitler. Germany made huge territorial gains, gains at the new Bolshevik Russia's expense. These led, as Tannenberg had done, to a rise in German hubris. It wasn't noticed that many of these returning victors from the East had been infected by Bolshevism and would take part in the strikes that brought Germany into revolution by the end of the war. In January 1918, even, there were walkouts in Berlin. Ludendorff, <coughs> dominant after his success at Liège and then at Tannenberg, judged the British to be the most vulnerable of the Allies. In March 1918, the huge first German successes took place. Then, the greatest German weakness of the war, the way Germany always put tactical before strategic success, began to tell again as the armies outran their supply lines and stamina. From the spring to July 1918, Germany had nearly a million casualties. The war poets symbolized the change in morale. London had expressed exhaustion and gloom after the Flanders Offensive of 1917. Owen now felt the rising optimism. Poetry can show us intense individual feeling. 
One of the most depressing aspects of the First World War is the way millions of people became submerged into grand schemes of strategy. But a few of them, thanks to the poets, zoom out again from under the general mass to reassert their individuality. Owen's death now means so much to us because of what he left. Not only the poems themselves, but a view of war, of all war. This has become a part of our national story, of the memory of our first great 20th century European war. With other poets, especially perhaps Siegfried Sassoon, Owen helped to bring about a lasting sense of anger at the supposed utility of the war. We enter the world of incompetent generals, miles behind the lines, guzzling in shadows, pointless offensive launched across lunar landscapes, where troops entangled in barbed become sitting ducks. This is the war of, oh, what a lovely war, Jim Littlewood's uh, production, of Blackadder, of countless works of fiction, some of them very, very bad. <laughs> Much more ephemeral, but hugely powerful at the time, are the huge moods that sweep across different nationalities. French soldiers like Végon, who opted for Vichy in 1940, and the increasingly anglophobic de Gaulle, remembered the British collapse and cried for help in March 1918, when the German offensive seemed to carry all before it. In return, the British recalled how near to defeat the French came in 1914. In his address to the French Parliament after the armistice in November, the French Prime Minister Clemenceau, Clemenceau made no mention of the British part in bringing about victory. The, the defeated myth became essential, particularly as Germany had gambled so much on a short and successful <coughs> on a victory that would affirm its domination of Europe. Out of the confusion, out of revolution, abdication of the emperor, the end of the monarchy, economic collapse, and occupation by foreign troops, came the myth of a lost triumph, of a betrayal of the army by the politicians. German soil had never been invaded, but war could still be won. Of course, all this was nonsense. In the autumn of 1918, Hindenburg and Ludendorff had both pressed the Kaiser to ask for terms as the army fell back in disarray. True, the collapse hadn't been as quick as they'd feared. As late as September, it was thought the war would last until 1919, and even in October, German resistance was still powerful in some sectors. But it was strong enough, this myth, to lead to the idea of the stab in the back. What gave it greater strength, I think, was what had happened in the East starting in East Prussia in 1914 and persisting to the Russian Revolution and the devastating Treaty of Brest-Litovsk imposed upon a new Russia in February 1918. Here was a war that had been won. There could be no doubt about that. Symbols took the place of thought, their power aided by the peace treaty which cut Eastern Germany off from the rest of the country by creating the Polish corridor and turned Danzig into an international city under a commissioner appointed by the new League of Nations. Hindenburg came out of the fog of silence and humiliation to issue proclamations to the veterans of Tannenberg. A huge monument that resembled one of the castles of the Teutonic Knights was built on the site of the battle 
and dedicated by the field marshal, by then president of the new German Republic, in September 1927. Scornfully, Hindenburg, now aged 80, repudiated Germany's admission in the Treaty of Versailles that it had started the war. One can see in all this a repeat of the hubris that followed the victory in 1914 and Brest-Litovsk in 1918, a sense of the gambler's mindset. This was taken much further, of course, by Hitler, whose throws of the dice seemed more and more successful, aided by the resentment he could stir up in Germany over the so-called lost eastern territories, the Dagenland, the Corridor, Danzig, the isolation of East Prussia. In the years between the wars, there was much refighting of old battles in Germany. The Marne, for instance, went through an entirely different interpretation to that given to it by the French and the British. The British General Spears claimed that a cavalry engagement involving British forces at Neri destroyed the enemy's scouting power and let Joffre set a trap for the Germans, which became the victory of the Marne. So that made the British responsible. Young others argued, whether it was Foch or Gallieni or Joffre who had been the architect of victory. Young Germans, however, were taught that only a misunderstanding, and this is in Sebastian Hafner's fascinating autobiography, young Germans were taught that only a misunderstanding caused their armies to abandon the field. And there was much arguing as to which commander had been responsible, Moltke, Bülow, or a Colonel Hinch. There'd be no arguing, but there could be no arguing about Tannenberg. It's been an undoubted victory. It's said sometimes that German battlefield triumphs, Tannenberg, Caporetto, had little effect on the overall outcome of the war. With Tannenberg, I should think the effect was long-reaching on Russian and German morale, encouraging despair in one and hubris in the other. It was the same with the American entry in the war. By the summer of 1918, after the failure of the last gambler's throw of the huge March offensive, the Allies' counterattacks were surely bolstered in their effect on the German high command by the specter of a potentially almost unceasing flow of manpower from across the Atlantic. It's true that as late as August, near the time described as the Black Day of the German army, Hindenburg showing his legendary imperturbability, asked his wife to send him a selection of German classics to read, as he had so little to do as supreme commander. <laughs> was this a pose? Was it a private joke? Or was it a kind of madness? We can't know. In the last stages of this war, the massive technological advances Amid the massive technological advances, the cavalry at last came into its own, harrowing the retreating Germans. It's a touching picture, but at last the fox-hunting dragoon, hussar, household cavalry and yeomanry officers, they couldn't believe it. This was the sort of thing they expected in 1914 when they set off with their horses for the continent. At last, it was fun. Not until September the 28th, 1918, did Ludendorff raise the question of an armistice with Hindenburg, admitting defeat? But who in 1914 had seen what the war would become? The Germans, perhaps, had been most prescient. Realizing the need for a quick victory, 
Molko is said to observe when the Battle of the Marne stopped the advance and paralyzing trench warfare began. Now we've lost. The German Chancellor Bethmann Holwig, like the Kaiser, was overcome at the very last minute by doubt, just as hostilities were about to begin. He ordered that slow-growing elms shouldn't be planted on his Brandenburg estate because the Russians would eventually profit from them when they took possession of it. Sure enough, in 1945, the Red Army came up the drive to prove him correct. Thank you.